Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Tell them to meet me at Egbert's Stone, near the woods where Somerset meets Wiltshire. Tell them to bring whatever weapons they can find, knives, cudgels, even pitchforks if they have them. Tell them to lift up their hearts and summon their courage. For too long have we lived in fear of the Danes. No longer. At Egbert's Stone, we will stand and fight. For God. For Wessex. For England. Uh, that Dominic Sandbrook was uh, an extract from a top new book, Fury of the Vikings, by a top historian, namely yourself. Uh, so the latest <laughs> in your series of books uh, written for children, Adventures in History. Sorry, Adventures in Time, Adventures Tom. in Time, Dominic. Sorry. <laughs> um, brilliant stuff. That is exactly how, when I was a child in Wessex, that's exactly the kind of stuff that's how that, I, that I read. <laughs> yeah. Well, I learned about King Alfred because I was devoted to Alfred. Um, I grew up near Wilton, which became the the kind of the great dynastic um, centre for for the for, for the women of Wessex, and so I felt incredibly proud of Alfred. I kind of felt that he was my king, um, and I'm absolutely thrilled to be doing this episode. I've been oh, looking forward Tom, to it ever since we started uh, <laughs> doing this podcast. I'm I'm glad to have stirred such feelings in you, Tom. I laughed at you when you implied that Alexander the Great was um, a worthwhile model for young boys and girls, but with this, I completely agree that Alfred is an absolute model. And yeah. uh, everyone should try and live like Alfred. For those people who don't know, I've been doing a series of children's books aimed at people between, I don't know, eight and 12 or something. And this one is, as Tom says, called Fury of the Vikings. And Alfred is one of the great characters in it because there is an argument, isn't there, Tom, that the, the battle against the Viking, the fight against the Vikings was the foundational moment in the creation of something called England and Englishness. Absolutely. And yes. the idea of Englishness doesn't make any sense unless you understand it as a, a reaction to the landing of so many boats from from Denmark and Norway and whatnot and the long ships and I, I mean I think I think I would go further than that. So the passage I read, that is Alfred summoning the West Saxons to join him. And they will go on to fight um a great battle at uh, at, at Eddington. But this is after probably um the most famous thing associated with Alfred, which is the burning of the cakes. Yes. Um, he's been he's been attacked by the Vikings. He's fled into the marshes of Athelney, and he's gazing into the fire, trying to work out how to defeat the Vikings. And he burns the cakes, uh, yep. and then he goes out and he, he he has this stirring peroration, which Dominic has just you know just written up for us. So it's all great stuff. But I think that the the history behind this is actually. I mean, it couldn't be more dramatic. And we've talked quite a lot over the course of this series about whether there are truly decisive moments, whether there are episodes or events that if they'd gone differently, history would have been radically different. And I yeah. do think that had Alfred died, had he been captured by the Vikings and, and executed, or had he fallen in battle, or had he given up and fled, as so many of the other kings of the various Anglo-Saxon kingdoms had done... I think I think the history of England and therefore of much of the rest of the planet would be considerably diff different. I really do well, think that. Would there even be an, an somewhere called England? Would that word exist? That is that is the question. Um, I mean, I certainly think the language that we're speaking now would probably not exist. Um, it would be yeah. a very different thing. Um, so I, I think that the reign of Alfred is really, really important. Um, there is a, I mean, there is a problem, I think, in overhyping Alfred because that's what the Victorians did. So there's a sense in which our image of Alfred is so strongly mediated through the devotion that the Victorians felt for him. Yeah. as this kind of flaxen-haired Victorian Christian gentleman, which is very much the image, who basically invented everything. Didn't he invent? He invented clocks, the Royal Navy, <laughs> books, 
English. Oxford University. Uh, yes. I mean, basically everything. Yeah. But I, I do think that he's great. Uh, I mean, if the word great means anything, I think Alfred was great. And that, that word is actually, you know, the association of Alfred with the idea of greatness is quiet. I mean, it goes quite a long way back. Um, mm. I mean, it goes back to, I think, 13th century. I think it's Matthew Paris who first, who first does that and then really takes wing with the Tudors. But simultaneously, it's interesting that the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which is our main source for vast sweeps of, of early medieval history in Britain, and which basically Alfred started up, um, doesn't when, when Alfred dies, it doesn't give him any great encomium. I mean, it doesn't kind of cast him as, as this great figure that we subsequently um, salute. And I think that that reflects the fact that perhaps it, it required the distance of centuries properly to appreciate the full scale of his achievement. They don't know what we know. So they don't know that Alfred's heirs, presumably, yeah. they, when they're writing, they don't know that Alfred's heirs are going to go on and build this. This, you know, They're going to fulfill his dream, as it were. So people who've seen um, the TV series, The Last Kingdom, based on the Bernard Cornwell historical novels, will know that in the series, Alfred is always going on about his dream of England. Yeah. Um, and I obviously I couldn't resist putting that in my book. <laughs> well, also Dominic, people who've listened to our episode on um, World Cup of English kings and queens. Yeah, the winner was Athelstan, commonly thought to be the first king of England. That's certainly how we cast him. Um, who is the grandson of yes. Alfred? Yeah, um, and and deeply shaped by him. Alfred did not feature in the, the World Cup of English. We had kings a massive argument about we that, did. didn't we, Tom? We did because he was not a king of England. He's a king of. Wessex, which is the, yeah. you know, so we should just, so let's, let's get on to Alfred. Let's get on to Alfred's life. Right. So we should do the Vikings as well. We're going to talk about the Vikings in the second half, aren't we? Because yeah. we're going to bring them on stage as they, I mean, a hero needs antagonists. And I think Alfred's story does depend on the Vikings, Completely. on these sort of gigantic, black bearded, sort or of. blonde bearded. Well, I suppose they would have been blonde bearded. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but they, well, in the, in the Ladybird book that I read when I was <laughs> exactly. little, I'm sure they were Blackbeard because all the Anglo-Saxons were blonde. Were blonde so they, yes. yes. <laughs> Looking but, like Prince Albert. But that sort of antagonism, <laughs> that's what fires your imagination. That's what must have been more fired your imagination towards. Completely. The fact that, you know, terrible, these terrifying figures with horns and so, helmets. So, and so as a child, in the books I read, the Vikings were terrifying. They were terrifying yeah. adversaries who would disembowel you or pull your guts out or whatever. Exactly. Shoot yes. you full of arrows. Um, and then... I kind of graduated to, to books that said, oh, no, that wasn't true at all. These are all, um, you know, They're kindly fantasies, traders. Fan yeah. <laughs> fantasies manufactured by uh, by monks. Uh, right. and in fact, they, yes, the wonderful culture that they spread and all this kind of thing. And now I've definitely gone back to, yeah, they were terrifying. I mean, right. you know, their culture was extraordinary, but it was extraordinary in a terrifying way. And I completely agree um, that the measure of the drama of Alfred escaping the assault on Chippenham Getting to Athelney, winning at Eddington is entirely dependent on the fact that the penalties for defeat were horrendous. Yeah. But as you say, we will come to the Vikings. So we don't have a unitary state of England, do we, in no. the ninth century? Competing kingdoms. So you've got Northumbria in the north. Uh, you have Mercia, which is the kind of, on paper, looks like the giant because it's kind of sprawling over the, the Midlands. You've got East Anglia and you've got Wessex, haven't you? And Wessex is the coming. It's, you know, power, yeah. it's the coming power. The others have all had a moment in the sun, particularly Northumbria and Mercia, but they're in decline. And um, Wessex, which has kind of been not exactly a, a whipping boy is too too strong, isn't it? But Wessex has been a, a slightly junior kingdom, I would say. Is that fair, Tom? A slow developer. Yeah. Are you you won't hear a word against Wessex, of course. Because <laughs> you're basically. Do, do you ever? There's a, so in Chipping Norton, where I live, you, you can you can vote for the Wessex Regionalist Party. Yeah, Presumably, tempted. you would vote for them. Yeah, if I you think could. I would. I think I would. Well, but I'm Mercian as well. My my um my ancestry reaches back to Mercia. Of course, so I am an Anglo-Saxon figure. So yeah. uh, the Northumbrians, the Mercians, the East Angles, by definition, are Anglians, Angles, um, uh, Angli, and the uh, the the Wessex is the kingdom of the West Saxons. So they they're Saxon. They 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 essentially speak the same language. Yeah, they have the same religion. Um, they have the same kind of foundation myths. So I think they feel a certain kind of kinship, um, and this will become very important to Alfred. But at the same time, the opportunity to <laughs> to fight each other is also very important. And, and basically, they play by rules, I think. I mean, obviously, you know, battles between, say, the Mercians or the West Saxons or whoever are murderous when they get there. But there's the slight element of a kind of seasonal fixture about it. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you summon your men. They take time to come there. You go out. You have a battle. You come back, 
Uh, and this is why the Vikings are so devastating is that they don't play by the rules. And there's a sort of sense, isn't there? Doesn't uh, the uh, Bede, the, the venerable Bede, um, Northumbrian, doesn't he call them the Gens Anglorum or something yes. like that? So yes. there, there is a sense that they are, they, they know that they've got something in common, like their language and customs. And as you say, they've got this sense they've come over the sea, which yep. they had done sort of two or 300 years earlier. Um, but there's never been an England that no. nobody has ever really th- even thought to to do away with the competing kingdoms and have a single state. Th- th- there is this title, the Bretwalder, yeah, um, which is the kind of the the supreme king. And essentially, you know, to begin with, it's Northumbrian kings who tend to claim that title, then um, uh, Mercian ones. And Alfred's grandfather Egbert, he claims it for Wessex. So um, eight two five, there's a great battle where he defeats Beornwulf, the king of Mercia, and yeah. the, the kind of the, the strain of the Tolkienesque in the, all this is not um, coincidental because of Tol- Tolkien was absolutely steeped in all this stuff. So Beornwulf, Bear, Beowulf. So uh, as a result of that battle, he is by eight two nine, he's being hailed as the Bretwalder, the, the the paramount king in England. And he has essentially brought the previously independent kingdoms of Kent, of Sussex, of Essex under his rule. And he's kind of got Mercia to acknowledge a degree of of sovereignty. But I think what's interesting in the wake of this is that, oddly, relations between Mercia and Wessex seem to have improved. And it may be that he he doesn't force his supremacy too brutally or too kind of aggressively uh, and actually kind of works to build bridges between um between wessex and mercia um and this this will be very important in the story of alfred one thing we haven't mentioned tom just to put this into context these people are all christian aren't they completely christian yes very 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 devoutly christian it's it's really important to them that they're christian i mean that's the big difference i would say between so when i've given school talks and stuff about my books the children always say the Anglo-Saxons and the Vikings look so similar. They wear the same clothes. They have the same swords. What's the difference? I mean, obviously to them, the single biggest difference, um, apart from any linguistic differences or whatever, is that the Anglo-Saxons are Christians and that's how they see themselves. And when they talk about the, the Danes or whatever, the, what we would call the Vikings, they usually call them the heathens or the pagans or that's the thing that strikes them about them, isn't it? Yeah. They take it very seriously. Alfred in particular, the, the king about whom we know the most, there's an absolute sense that he feels that he has been appointed to the the throne by God and that he will therefore be answerable to God for the state of his kingdom and the people within it. Yeah. And I think that you you get a sense definitely with Alfred again, you know, because we know we know enough about his character and uh, actually about the physical ailments that that over the course of his reign affect him. He he seems to have experienced, I think, the kind of the tension between the obligations on him as, as a Christian and the obligations to defend his people as a kind of, it, it seems to have induced a considerable strain in him, I think, but it yeah. is, but it is Im- important to him. You know, the tension between, you know, put up your sword and having to draw your sword. Alfred, I think is troubled by this throughout his reign. Uh, but the other thing, Dominic, I was just going to say is that the church is important to any king in early medieval England because they provide the literate clerks who can draw up the charters and who can provide the the kind of the nascent bureaucracy that gives to the various Anglo-Saxon kingdoms their claim to be a part of a kind of broader Christian civilization. Yeah. Um, and again, that is very, very important to Alfred because, and it's so important. So he he's born in um, eight four nine in Wantage in Oxfordshire. And his father is Ethelwolf. Yeah, who is the first, I think, the first son to succeed his father as King of Wessex for about a century or more. Yeah, because that gives you a sense. It was very unstable. I mean, there were different families kind of fighting. There's not one yeah. dynasty going all the way through. The, it's very Game of Thrones. Um, but Ethelwolf succeeds. Alfred, there's no sense that Alfred has been born to be king, though, is there? Because he's, he's not the oldest No, he's the son. youngest of five brothers yeah. and, and one sister. But I think the measure of how uh, confident Athelwulf is in the stability of his realm is that, first of all, he sends Alfred off to Rome as a very young boy. The age of four. The age of four, to, to be where he's received by the Pope Leo IV, who, who 
bestows great honours on him. Yeah, gives him the sword and the robe of a Roman consul. And that sort of, I mean, obviously they are living, I mean, they are literally living, Tom, in the ruins of yeah. the Western Roman Empire. But there's still a sense, isn't there, that um, there's enormous status and prestige associated with Rome and Romanness. And for a little boy, I mean, who Must knows? Have been do, overwhelming. Do you remember this? Do you remember things that happened when you were four? I mean, maybe you do if people are always talking about it. You think yeah. you do. And I'm sure for, you know, we don't, I mean, it's difficult to delve too much into Alfred's psychology. But for a little, a four-year-old boy surrounded by servants and bodyguards and, and whatnot, yeah. to be there with the Pope in front of him, the Pope anoints him, I think, puts a hand on his forehead and says, here's the the all the stuff of a consul. That's a pretty big deal, yeah, isn't it? It is a bit. And uh, rammed home by the fact that two years later, Alfred goes to Rome again. I mean, unbelievably. Yeah. Um with his father, who has left his his one of his sons as kind of regent, he's kind of slightly divvied the kingdom up between two of his uh, his two elder sons, and he goes off on pilgrimage again, taking Alfred. Rome, I think, has a, a huge impact on Alfred. It's a kind of model of the kind of grandeur that it is possible for um, a Christian city to possess. Yeah. But then coming back from Rome, they go through Francia, so the the, the Frankish Empire that had been founded, you know brought to greatness by Charlemagne. Um, and they visit the court of Charles the Bald. Who had a full named. head of hair. Who had a full head of hair, yes. So they called him Charles the Bald, and we don't know if that was a joke or, or what. <laughs> um, and Athelwolf marries uh, one of Charles's daughters called Judith. But again, I think the, the effect of seeing the court of the heirs of Charlemagne, again, must have had a very, very powerful impact on Alfred yeah. and given him a sense of what it was to be a Christian king that will never leave him. So when he gets back, I mean, there's one thing we know about him. Well, there's one story that's often told about him as a boy, isn't there, Tom? Which is that, uh, I mean, you, you read this in all the sort of children's accounts, children's sort of storybook accounts of Alfred the Great, that his mother calls all her sons to her side, and she's holding this beautiful illustrated volume of Anglo-Saxon poetry. And she says, I shall give this to the first boy who can read it. And Alfred is absolutely determined to overhaul his older siblings. And he says, how do I, how do I, you know, she says, well, you have to learn everything in the book. And um, the story goes that he, he borrows the book and he takes it to a, a monk who's teaching him about the Bible. And the monk explains to him what's in the book. Alfred learns it all by heart. Obviously, dead easy to learn the contents of a book in just a few days, Tom. Um, and then a few days later, he goes to his mother and says, oh, I can tell you what's in the book. And he recites it all. And she gives him the book. And the children's stories say he keeps the book by his bedside for the rest of his life. Such a moving story. But this is in the life of Alfred, isn't it? There's a hint of this in the life of Alfred by his friend and sort of protege and devotee, the Welsh bishop Asa, who clearly worshipped Alfred. Indisputably, one of the reasons why posterity has such a positive take on Alfred is the fact that, that Alfred, a bit like Churchill, wrote his... <laughs> he controlled the sources. Um, and uh, so Alfred commissions the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, but he also commissions this extraordinary life by this, this Welsh bishop Asa, you know, which is pretty pretty unique we don't really have anything comparable and so we do get this you know these anecdotes and presumably this story must have come from alfred uh, yeah. and you know it shows him in a very good light <laughs> so surprise surprise what it also suggests though is that that alfred learns it by the poetry by heart but he, he doesn't learn to read well that's the fascinating thing isn't it yes because there's no way you can learn to read in three days no. or whatever. so this is this is something that that i think weighs on alfred over the course of his childhood and then into his his youth that that he can't read you know he would like to learn to read he would like to learn to write he would like yeah. to 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 be able to translate from english into latin or vice versa um much better than he actually can and this is something that over the you know he's absolute exemplar of adult education he over the course of his life even when he's busy fighting Vikings and issuing charters and building new towns and all kinds of things, all the stuff that, that Anglo-Saxon kings have to do, he is also committing himself to, to, to this learning. And the idea of learning is really, really important to him. Well, isn't that the key to Alfred the Great's, I mean, as it were, greatness, that, um, you know, what you see, you can see in him what you, as with all Titanic characters in history, you can see in him what you want because he's both a warrior who literally, you know, 
leads from the front, stands there at the shield wall, kind of hacking and slashing and all the rest of it. But he's also associated with poetry, with literacy, with education, with religious institutions, all these kinds of things. And that gives him a dimension that uh, just a warlord wouldn't necessarily have. Yeah. I I mean, I think that there are are lots of Anglo-Saxon kings that are very good at killing people in war. And Alfred is very, very good at killing people in war. And he is perfectly capable of of behaving very brutally when he needs to. You know, the idea that he was a Victorian gentleman is, is not true. You know, you don't become a successful warlord without being able to be very, very brutal. But I think where Alfred is exceptional and, you know, the reason why it's legitimate to think of him as, as great, if you believe in that kind of concept of great is he seems to have had a real and authentic kind of originality of mind and a kind of breadth of vision that enables him to see what you do with your military victories. And Alfred seems to have understood that you can't really have a strong army and therefore a strong kingdom that is capable of keeping enemies at bay without also having you know, the apparatus of learning. So monasteries where monks are, uh, nuns are going and towns that are yeah. prosperous and able to generate revenue. So he understands that learning and wealth are basically the key to being a great military leader and that yeah. they're, they're a kind of single package. And he seems to have understood that better than than any other king in um, early medieval England. And I wonder whether one of the reasons why he gets that sense is firstly that he's been to the continent. We've talked about that. But also when he comes back to England, it's to a, it's to a land that is under massive strain yeah. and where actually the worldly possessions of his own family and of certainly of other royal families are starting to come under strain because they're being pillaged by invaders. And that infrastructure of learning that had sustained Christian civilization in England for, for centuries is likewise starting to crumble. And this is why Alfred doesn't have the chance to, to learn in the way that he would have wanted to. Uh, and all you can do is learn by heart because the apparatus of teaching is no longer there. And of course, the reason why both learning and prosperity are coming under attack during Alfred's childhood is because he is coming of age in a period of devastating invasion by the Vikings. That's a a great segue, Tom, a perfect (laughs) segue. Um, I think we should take a break and we should return after the break with the Vikings and Alfred's struggles against the Vikings. See you in a minute. Now, this episode of The Rest is History is sponsored by our friends at Unheard, the online magazine that encourages independent thinking. And as it happens, I've just written an article for Unheard all about the Vikings, talking about their reputation today and the way in which we should tell their stories to children. So when I was writing my book, there were lots of gory bits. And to forestall any talk of the dreaded sensitivity readers, I read bits to um children, school groups, and so on. The children generally love them, except there was one little girl I always remember who sort of frowned and shook her head. And afterwards, she came up to me and she looked me very serious and she's still shaking her head. And she said, I said, what's the trouble? And she said, there wasn't enough beheading. If you're rewriting it, put in more deaths, please. So the future of the uh, British nation is clearly in great hands. Now, if you want to read more from Unheard, there is a new special offer, and it's been running since Bonfire Night for listeners to The Rest is History, so you can enjoy Unheard every day. It's only a pound for three months, one pound, and it runs this week only, the offer. So normally, Unheard would cost you a pound a week, but this is just a pound for three months. So go to unheard.com slash rest, that's unheard.com slash rest, to claim your subscription now. The raiders charged up the beaches of Lindisfarne like a storm from the depths of hell. The first monk they met on the path leading up from the shore, they hacked to the ground without a word, an axe splintering his skull in a moment. Then they raced on up the slope, their swords eager for slaughter. More monks came towards them, their hands raised to beg for mercy. The Vikings cut them down where they stood. Blood splattered over the turf. Now they were into the monastery, crashing through the doors, roaring and howling with diabolical rage. They pulled down the crosses and smashed open the tombs. They piled up the holy vessels and stamped on the relics. 
They tore off the altar cloth, ripped up the Bibles, and dragged out the desks. And all the time, Tom, they were laughing. A chorus of cruel and savage joy. Ooh, so the rotters. That is the raid on Lindisfarne in the year 793. Um, often taken, in, in most sort of general histories of the Vikings, that's ta- always taken as the kickoff. You know, the most ex- the exciting moment when they explode into the pages of history. Um, so that was obviously a reading from a wonderful new children's book <laughs> called Fury of the Vikings by myself. Yeah, very um, good. Very but good. Tom, actually, that's not the first time they had pitched up. No. So um, as early as kind of the mid um, 8th century, so kind of 750, 753, you're getting uh, chroniclers in the Isle of Thanet um describing danish raiders as a kind of um a kind of disease that induces madness and death yeah um and they the, the vikings seem to have um been raiding the southern coast of england they disgraced themselves in dorset didn't they, they do uh, yes. four years earlier yes the isle um, of portland yeah and um, they turn up and the a local reeve a kind of royal official thinks that they've well, that they're the peaceable traders of right. 1960s historiography. Come, come, yeah, exactly. Come and talk to me about multiculturalism and your lovely jewellery. <laughs> there goes his head. Yeah. Um, and, and you would expect, of course, you know, the channel is the easiest for ships to, to get to. You know, you, you follow the line of the, the North Sea coast. Um, so it's not surprising that Kent and, and the south coast of England are, are starting to be raided through this period. But Lindisfarne is a shock to everyone because, of course, it's the Shrine of St. Cuthbert, very much yeah. a friend of the show. So it's a very, very – it has a, a, a genuinely, dare I say, sacral place, Tom. It's beyond sacral, Dominic. I mean, In the hearts <laughs> of Englishmen. <laughs> it certainly does. And as we will see, uh, Cuthbert has a, a great hold on, on It does indeed, yeah. So the Vikings, I mean, obviously they are – they are raiders and traders from what are now Denmark, I suppose Norway, to, to some extent Sweden, though. I think the Swedes are probably going east rather than, than west. Yeah. Uh, but they are, you know, they have always, almost certainly, they've, they've been coming for a long time to trade, you know, come, the, the North Sea has been a, a lake. Yeah, a lake. Yeah. Um, but what seems to have happened, doesn't it, in the sort of mid eighth century, is that the Vikings become in the, what we call the Vikings? The Norsemen become emboldened; they become more aggressive. There's more stuff for them to steal. Yeah. Um, so, so Lindisfarne is very rich. Yeah. And obviously, once they've descended on Lindisfarne, purloined it, the news of that gets around. And from that point on, essentially, you know, all the strongholds of wealth in England—monasteries, royal centres, whatever—are. You know, kind of sitting ducks and it's worth sort of saying i i think why why do they come to, why bother going to england the answer is that england is very rich england yeah. is rich and settled and stable it has all this farmland which frankly they don't have in norway yeah to begin, i mean to begin with they're not settling necessarily i mean no. and, the, and the thing also is that with their ships, they can kind of glide up rivers. So every yeah. major river is like a kind of dagger pointed at the vitals of England, and they can glide up and just grab stuff and then go. The diff, you know, the the mark of the escalation is when they start to overwinter. So that's about eight fifty, isn't it? So eight fifty, they winter on the Isle of Thanet, which is the kind of running joke in ten sixty six so, and all that. That all invasions begin in the Isle of Thanet. So that's at the very corner of Kent. So it's not just they're going to hit your town, they're going to hit your monastery and then disappear. This is they're coming. And they are staying. They're starting to think, yeah, we'll put down roots here over winter and we'll, in the long run, try and grab land and entire kingdoms. Yeah. Um, and they seem so, – so the Isle of Thanet in Kent, Wessex is vulnerable. After they've overwintered there, they strike into Wessex and they get annihilated. Uh, a great battle in Surrey. That's mm. such an odd thing to say, a great battle yes. in Surrey yeah. <laughs> on the golf course. But it, but it was described as the greatest slaughter on a heathen army that we ever heard of until this present day. And that's being written in the time of Alfred. So, you know, that's even by comparison with Alfred's victories. So there's, I think one of the reasons why Wessex um, comes under less strain than the other kingdoms, despite the fact that in a way it's absolutely in the path of all these fleets coming over the North Sea, is that they do put up a good showing and that the memory of this this great slaughter um, at a place called Aklea is remembered by the Vikings. And so they go after other softer targets. Yeah. I mean, there's a sense, isn't there, sometimes in the sort of popular imagination of the Anglo-Saxons, you definitely see this in TV series, that the Anglo-Saxons are sort of weedy, foppish monks 
and the Vikings are terribly fierce, brilliant fighters. But the Vikings at first are not terribly good at pitched battles because they're raiding parties. They're not armies. And they don't do sieges particularly. They're not very good at sieges at first. So the Anglo-Saxons are not... The Anglo-Saxons are not weedy. No, the Ang- exactly. The, you know, the Anglo-Saxons are very, very keen on fighting. They're very good at fighting, but they are not suited to the kind of warfare that the, the Vikings bring. Because as we said in the first part, they, um, you know, you have to raise armies from the shires. You have to have meeting points so that yeah. the passage we opened with Egbert Stone, set up by Egbert, Alfred's grandfather. This is a meeting point. But if you've got, you know, if you've got a, a, a Viking ship gliding up the river and a great fat monastery, they're just going to grab it and yeah. ha- and hair off um, before uh, you know the local troops can be summoned from all the various corners. It's that point you made about not fighting by the rules. Yeah, the Vikings don't follow the rules. But obviously, the more treasure you get, the richer you become. The more troops you can attract the larger and larger you become. And this yeah. is the problem. It just becomes, you know, it's a kind of escalating danger. And it's happening so quickly that the apparatus of these Anglo-Saxon kingdoms is inadequate to cope with it. But yeah. I don't think it's, you know, there's no sense that any of the Anglo-Saxon kings are weedy. But the Anglo-Saxon, so interestingly, the one that f- they attack m- most successfully first, which is Northumbria, is divided. So it's always the way when you're divided, that attracts um, outsiders. Um, and I think it's when, I mean, that's Alfred's genius in a way, is that he privileges, he prioritizes the idea of unity and, you know, his idea of sort of Englishness, which is the sort of Bernard Cornwell fantasy Alfred. Yeah. I mean, that kind of makes sense that that's exactly the way that you would fight off these, these raiders who are sort of striking yeah. without warning. Yeah. So, so by, uh, by, by 865, um, You've had these raiders coming for decades and they're starting to accumulate more and more people. You get what in old English is called the Mikkel Heathen Hera, uh, a, a, a vast heathen, vast pagan army. And um, there's a great book called Viking England by Thomas Williams, oh, who, yeah. who, <laughs> who, who defines a Hera, an a, army, as actually being a large group of thieves working together, which I think yeah. is maybe a slightly more accurate um, description of it. But so they overwinter in East Anglia, where there's a king, Edmund, who basically buys them off, gives them a load of horses, and they go galloping off up Ermine Street, the old Roman road that leads to York. And they just ride straight into York because the Northumbrian yeah. kings have no idea. Well, there's two Northumbrian kings who've fallen out with each other, aren't there? Aella and um, Osbert. And um, Aella, ultimately, who meets this famous fate. <laughs> yes. So I was saying in the first half, giving talks to school children about the Vikings, they, they always ask the same kind of four or five questions. So one of them is horned helmets, obviously. Yeah. But another one is a boy, and it'll always be a boy, a very sort of a boy with death in his eyes. will say, <laughs> did they do the blood eagle? Because yeah. Ayella is the person who supposedly falls victim to this. Isn't yeah. he? The blood horn. So there's a, the guy who's meant to have done it, one of the leaders of the great heathen army, has the absolutely splendid name of Ivar the Boneless. <laughs> yeah. And nobody knows. <laughs> but his brothers are almost as good, aren't they? And there's half Dan, half Dan white shirt. And, and Hubba. <laughs> uh, yeah, Hubba. Or Ubba. I think Ubba is... <laughs> Hubbard is funnier. Um, but uh, Ivor the Boneless, he may have had some kind of, we don't know, some historians think he may have had brittle bone disease, or he may have had, I mean, who knows, spina bifida, or, or or is it a mistranslation? It's so suffused with myth, isn't it? It is. Because they're meant to be the sons of um, uh, Ragnar Lothbrok, Ragnar Hairpants, who yeah. is- Who killed a dragon wearing some hairy yeah. trousers. <laughs> Which, where, yeah, where he's rolled in snow and made kind of- <laughs> frozen all the fur and then the the serpent wraps itself around him and exactly and dies exactly. so that's basically the kind of the level of probability that we're well hold on tom in my in my version of the story <laughs> yeah, in the children's book happens, right? this absolutely <laughs> happened and ragnar is real but also there's um i mean there's a there's a, a medieval epic and this is centuries after it that says that uh that ragnar gets chucked into a pit of snakes by, by, Ella. by Ella, and yeah. anyone who's seen the kirk douglas film uh the vikings this is you know, one of the key plot motors. And, uh, and, and so that this, I think, what is it? 13th century, 12th century, that story. Um, yeah. They want revenge. So they Ayala, want revenge. They? And so they capture Ayala, who's tried to, he's, he's, he's tried to get York back. He and uh, he and all the lads have piled in, they get cornered, they get captured. And supposedly, according to a 13th century epic, Ivor and his brothers had the eagle cut into Ella's back 
then all his ribs severed from the backbone with a sword so that his lungs were pulled out. And this is the blood eagle. And it looks like, you know, he's got these kind of bloody wings. Sadly, Tom, this may not be true. Indeed, because a century earlier, a a Danish writer with the brilliant name of Saxo Grammaticus um, says that the eagle is actually carved into Ayla's back and they then rub salt into it, don't they? Yeah, which is which is is in its way. I mean, it's better, but it's still probably quite unpleasant. And that seems likely because you have 11th century verse at the court of Knut. Yeah. Um, so the, the Danish king who fame. becomes king. Yeah, of waves fame. Uh, where, where again, they say that, um, you know, this, this eagle is, is, t- is inscribed onto the back of the king. Or it could conceivably mean that um, Ivor has an eagle tear at Aeolus. Yes. Back. So is, he has a kind of pet exactly. eagle that rips him out. But either way, Tom, you've got a bloke with no bones <laughs> doing something eagle related doing something absolutely doing, unspeakable doing and eagle related to somebody else while his brothers are looking on and cackling through their beards i mean great scenes great great stuff great stuff hubba roaring yeah. with laughter uh yeah so it's all it's all very very frightening um and obviously this isn't good news for the northumbrians um because they uh, you know, they've lost their kings. They get a, a, a tame puppet king, a kind of quizzling put over them. Uh, and then the um, they go off and invade Mercia. And yeah. this is where Alfred enters the story as a warrior, because the first known example of him riding to war is to go, is to join the Mercians. And Alfred's wife is a Mercian. Yes. Uh, her name is... Um, Aleswith. Aleswith, exactly, yes. Um, and they go off to Nottingham, where the Vikings have, have kind of built themselves a fort, and they get rebuffed. They can't yeah. attack it and they don't know what to do. Again, it's because the Vikings aren't playing by rules under the terms of traditional sporting, you know, <laughs> Marcus of Queensbury rules. Yeah. Vikings are supposed to come out and have a fight and they don't. So um, it's it's all a, a little bit inglorious there. So the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle is <laughs> this brilliant. There occurred no serious fighting there. So oh. it was a score draw. Right. Yeah. Um, and it may be telling that this is when Alfred, this is the same year that Alfred marries um, Aylesworth is Mercian. So there's clearly a sense, I think, that that the West Saxons and the Mercians are aware that this is a very grievous threat and they need to completely bury their difference. Well, after this, there's another another example of Viking poor behaviour, Tom. Because <laughs> they, because um, you, some people may remember that we had said, you'd said they were given a load of horses by Edmund, the king of East Anglia, when they arrived. He'd bore them off. Yeah. They then pitch up back in East Anglia and they say, actually, We'll have your kingdom. We'll now, have the please. lot, please. Yeah, we'll have the <laughs> yeah. lot. Um, Edmund resists, doesn't he? He says, "You know, I'm not going to." Well, we don't really know. Yeah, but the I mean, all we're told so is good. all we're told is is that he dies. That there's a battle and he dies. But later on, it was said they captured him. They tie him up and they fire arrows at him so that he's prickly like a hedgehog. Yeah, which I think is a, lo- a lovely image. Um, and then eventually, he's. Supposedly, they're firing arrows at him, and he's just there. He muttering. still doesn't die. Yeah, he's talking about Jesus. He's just yes. shouting, talking about Jesus the whole time. <laughs> yeah. and they firing yeah. arrows. He won't shut up. So eventually, they cut his head off. Don't they? Isn't that right? They cut his that's head right. off and throw and it they, into they, the woods. They chuck it into a bramble patch. That's it. In the middle of a wood. Yeah, and then then they gallop off, kind of roaring yeah. with laughter as you would with such thing. <laughs> and you- then subsequently, <laughs> a, a peasant is walking through the wood, and he hears this voice going hick, 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 and he's not drunk. Because no. hick means is Latin for here. Yeah. And he goes over and there is um, King Edmund's head being guarded by a giant wolf. Fantastic stuff. And I don't know if you saw on Twitter over Halloween, there was an excellent, somebody had dressed up um, as a wolf with St. Edmund's head as a Halloween costume. Really? Yeah. It was an excellent costume. That is a good costume. And of course, that, Tom, is the origin of Bury St. Edmund's. The place, isn't it? It is. Although it, it's not about the burying no. of St. Edmunds, obviously, because bury is the burr, which we'll come to in yeah. the course of town. But, uh, so if you if you have been moved by this story, get yourself down to bury St. Edmunds. <laughs> well, so um, Francis Young, who we had on the show talking about- uh, The occult. The, the occult. A big, big fan of uh, Edmund. And he is convinced that Edmund's tomb still lies under the tennis courts. At Bury St. Edmunds. Really? Which would be very he should, exciting. He should do a Philippa Langley and try and dig up the tennis court. He, I think he, I, mean, I think he's gagging to. He's absolutely right. desperate to do that. But basically, you're right that that um, the death of Edmund gets kind of hyped up um, by a monk called Abbo of Fleury, who's writing in the late 10th century, who does, I mean, he's obviously aware that what he's writing is 
unlike you know it, there might be a bit of doubt about it because uh he's very keen to say i heard it from this guy who heard it from this guy who heard it from this guy but basically he's casting him as as being like christ you know yeah. this is his this is his passion yeah, yeah. and so edmund becomes a very very significant saint throughout the middle ages yeah whether or not it's true the fact of the matter is now that they the vikings who decades before had just been pillagers they have taken northumbria they have taken east anglia they have reduced mercia to a kind of client state that they can crush at will. Yeah. And suddenly Wessex is really vulnerable. It's just sitting there ripe for taking. Isn't yeah. It? Well, so it seems. So 870, which is the year that Edmund dies, they, they, the Vikings go off and get, attack um, uh, Wessex and they attack Reading. Yeah. Um, and there uh, they capture Reading. But they have a foraging party that gets wiped out by the local, um, the local elderman, the, the local earl, a, a man called Athelwolf. And this inspires um, Athelred, who is Alfred's elder brother, the fourth of, of, um, of, of his brothers to have become king. And the other three have basically all kind of, you know, they've been worn out by, by the challenge of leading Wessex in this very troubled time. Um, so he and Alfred um, go and try and recapture Reading, are defeated, are hurled back. Athelwolf is killed. It looks an absolute disaster. Um, the the, uh, the the West Saxons are kind of having to cross and recross the Thames to try and escape the Vikings. They're basically just fighting constant battles around the constant. M4, aren't they? Exactly. <laughs> right, right. Service Basic stations stoke, along the A4. You know. yeah. <laughs> yeah. But they do win a great victory. Um, so shortly after this, in early January 871, they win a great victory um, fighting around a single thorn tree. So it comes pretty called Ashdown. Yes. Um, and Alfred, it is said, takes the lead in this. He charges like a wild boar up a hill. Well, this um, is Asser's version, though, isn't it? Asser, it is. Asser yes, basically is. downplays Alfred's brother yeah. and says he was he was too busy praying. He was late for the battle because <laughs> he was praying. Yes. Alfred's roaring and you know charging yeah. into battle and Being all this stuff. Yeah, exactly. Not not a exactly. kind of, you know boring person, but a, a wild, aggressive pig. So it's in a seven one, Athelred dies, doesn't he? Yeah, Alfred's so brother. Alfred becomes king. And Athelred has sons. He has two boys, but there's no question of them succeeding. No. Because, you, you know, this be, is... Be bonkers in the current conditions. It would. Yeah, it would. And not least because there's another Viking force now, isn't there? So there's a second Viking horde that has sailed up the Thames called the Great Summer Army, and that's led by a man called Guthrum. Yes, so Guthrum is is basically we know so little about Guthrum. It's so disappointing when you look at the sources. Great because name, in all the kind of tales and legends, Guthrum is the antagonist par excellence, isn't he? You sort of so in the the I think it's probably the Ladybird book or something that I read when I was about ten. Guthrum was a massive man, you know, ten feet tall, yeah. really wide, massive beard. Horns on his helmet. Horn absolutely the horn, <laughs> you know, multiple horns on his helmet. <laughs> tattooed yeah. uh you know yeah. just a figure of uh, just a, a brilliant antagonist and um and he's going to be the person whose destiny is linked with alfred yeah yes and and uh, almost straight away alfred alfred is you know the moment he's become king he's you know he's desperately trying to fight the vikings off so the vikings defeat him at wilton so yeah the place very near where i grew up um and alfred buys them off but you you, you know you know that they're going to be back and the only reason really that they're not um, launching a full-blown invasion of, of Wessex is because they, they're now starting to move in on Mercia. They start overwintering in Mercia, huge, great camps. And the archaeology is really interesting. They say so they found you know, evidence basically for that thousands of people were staying here. And you know the one at Repton? Oh, yes, was, there's, a tomb. The, there's a the, famous the, tomb, isn't there? Yes. Yeah, so, so Repton, um, it was a, a necropolis for the Mercian kings, kind of a, a, a crypt where the, the Mercian kings were buried. So very, very, dare I say, sacral. Yeah. Um, very, very significant. A, a, an emblem of Mercian royal power and status. And so the Vikings go and build a massive great camp there. So the utter humiliation. And they found an incredible grave there where um, a boar tusk had been placed where the genitals would have been. So presumably this guy had been uh, castrated, disemboweled in battle um, and round his neck. He wore the hammer of Thor. Well, some people think he could have been either the bonus, Tom. Yes. So, I mean, wouldn't that be a nice twist? And maybe that's what where the, the bonusness, bonus, the bonusness <laughs> meant. comes from. Yeah. So just what are you saying about the camps? Now, that actually makes us think slightly differently, perhaps, about that Viking horde, because 
the Viking horde is not just blokes with beards and non-horned helmets. There's almost certainly women and children with them and camp followers and... And uh, blacksmiths yeah. making swords and all kinds so, of stuff. So when you yeah. read some of the descriptions by by modern historians of the of these Viking hordes and armies, they will say, you know what, if you'd actually seen them, it's a combination of a huge group of lads kind of tooled up for battle, but it's also got the slight atmosphere of maybe, and this sounds a bit bonkers, kind of slightly rock festival atmosphere yeah. in the background. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a very violent one. Very violent one. <laughs> very, very muddy. Very one. <laughs> People in tents, though, there probably would have been music. There would have been a lot of drinking. Um, it, a combination of... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A combination of an army, of a refugee yeah. camp, a rock festival... You know, a, a stag do that's gone horribly wrong. I mean, probably not a good place to be a local woman, or no. indeed a monk, or yeah. indeed probably anyone, um, yeah. unless you're a massive Viking lad. Yeah, in which case it's obviously you know it's brilliant. And of course, there are you know this is the plot of um of the Bernard Cornwall novels is that English speaking Angles or Saxons can sign up to this. You know, they yeah. can go, go over to them. Well, almost certainly as. Romano Britons would have done with the Anglo-Saxons generations earlier. So this is all very bad news for the uh, for the Mercians and the king of Mercia, a guy called Burgred, eventually has enough and he decides he's off and he goes off and lives in Rome. He does. A, he does a Prince Harry. He, he, he doesn't he. Well, I think he's under slightly more pressure than Prince Harry. Oh, to be fair Tom, to him, Tom, and the Vikings set up a guy much. called Caelwulf, yeah. who gets roundly abused by the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle as a foolish thane. I called him a, a mean and weasley man in my well, children's but, book, Tom. But Dominic, we don't know. We I know. Don't know. I made it because, up. But, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I mean, he must have been. To have, uh, he's a collaborator. Well, or the alternative is, you know, yeah. the, the, the vicious argument uh, yeah. that he's struggling to do his best to maintain a kind of fig leaf of mercy and independence. Oh. When we so do that he podcast about Marshall Payton, Tom, are you going to be getting all this stuff out? He basically gets given Gloucester. Yeah. And there is evidence that he and Alfred actually form a kind of alliance. So they found a coin um, minted in London. London is a Mercian uh, centre showing Alfred and Caelwulf on it portrayed as two Caesars, implying that there's a kind of, you know, they have an equal yeah. dignity, which doesn't equate with the way that subsequently in the Anglo-Saxon yeah. Chronicle, sponsored by Alfred, he is dismissed as this kind of idiot because by this point, Alfred is quite keen to take over mercy of course and bring it under his yeah. authority so that again i think is another example of the way in which alfred is not this perfect gentleman well it would be interesting wouldn't it just talking about the sources if we had an equivalent to the anglo-saxon chronicle written from outside wessex well we do have a mercy we do have mercy in accounts but they don't write about this particular they, period but they're not as detailed are they they're not no. as colorful so you don't get but if you did have the equivalent they might present a very different portrait of alfred they might see alfred as a as a wessex yeah. imperialist i suppose in due course alfred will go and, and capture london yeah and you know there, there was evidently fighting in london but it's not entirely clear who alfred was fighting you know, people tend to assume it was the Vikings, but it may well have been the Mercians because yeah. it was a Mercian city. So we, so I think that there is a sense that Alfred is try. you know, he does acknowledge Caelwulf as a, an authentic Mercian king, but he also, of course, recognises that Caelwulf is basically, you know, I mean, he's so weak. He's, he's, he, he's so much a puppet that he's not really going to be much use and that Wessex, therefore, is pretty much on its own. It's the last kingdom. So Alfred, let's get to 878, Tom. Yeah. Alfred has been king now for seven years. And so far, he's done a solid job of staving off the Vikings, hasn't he? By a combination of fighting and buying them off. Yeah. He's preserved, I suppose you would say, the status quo. Is that fair? Yeah, pretty much. And there's, he's had a lucky storm. So there's a, a, a great storm off the Dorset coast. Um, and it said 120 Viking ships are lost. Um, so he's, he's just about holding them out. Yeah. And he gets them to... You know, he signs a treaty. They they swap hostages. The Vikings withdraw. It looks as though Wessex is, you know, I mean, it's just about keeping its head above water. And it's winter. And by and large, you don't fight in winter. Yeah. And of course, it's you have Christmas in winter. Very, very holy feast. Alfred, very devout, celebrates it. And then you have the 12 days of Christmas, which, you know, we have celebrated in our own humble way, haven't we, with our episodes? Um, and Alfred is celebrating Twelfth Night at Chippenham, which is in North Wiltshire, and yep. it's a, a great royal centre. And this is a holy feast day. He signed the peace treaty. It's the dead of winter. 
he assumes that everything's going to be fine, but the Vikings are cheats. Shocking, said it before, we'll behavior. say it again. Yeah. They do not play by the rules and they launch an ambush. And this is absolutely standard Viking behavior. They love to attack people on Chris, on Christian feast days because they know that the likelihood is that their enemies will be off guard. And this yeah. is exactly what happens. And I think you could say that you know it's on or around um, 12th night in 878. Alfred is taken wholly by surprise. He cannot stand and fight because if he does, he'll be killed. So he flees into the dark and the whole future of England is hanging by a thread. Oh, it's so exciting. Tom. Hanging by a thread. It's a very dramatic moment. And if that thread had been cut, we'd all be, you know, we'd all be speaking Danish. Oh, I like Denmark actually, Tom. To be fair. Yeah, and, Brilliant yeah, so, tradition of kind yeah. of design. Lego um, and herring. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it'd be wonderful. But, but it didn't happen. And as we will find out in Thursday's episode, Alfred will go on to, to prove himself the king least likely to win the Great British Bake Off, but very much the king most likely to save a kingdom that is tottering on its very foundations. Well, that's all to come on Thursday, isn't it, Tom? And of course, if you're a member of the Rest is History Club, you can listen to that right now. But before you do, we should end on a proper cliffhanger with a reading from Fury of the Vikings of that's what happened that night in Chippenham. So the scullion boy has just gone outside, Tom, to relieve himself in the dead of night. And he's seen the Danes coming. Do you want to know what happens next? I'd love to. As his desperate yells broke through the silence, the men in the hall were shaking themselves awake and calling for their weapons, and the servants were running to bar the doors, and the first axe blows were thundering into the timbers. It was all too late. For already the heathens were inside the hall, and people were screaming and shrieking, and there were bodies on the ground, and blood was soaking into the rugs on the floor. But when it was all over, and Guthrum walked in through the shattered doors, picking his way past the heaps of bodies and puddles of gore. One body was missing, for somehow, against all the odds, Alfred had escaped. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access ad-free listening and access to our chat community please sign up at restishistorypod.com that's restishistorypod.com <laughs> <laughs>